Well, hello, I am That Weems Guy, and we are here for another episode of our very moderately growing show. Uh, the average, 30-day average for episodes has jumped to 221. Uh, this is the first time we've topped 200, and it's, it's jumped uh, significantly. I got two call- people called me today. Uh, wanting to know what the current revenue was since we joked about that on on previous episodes uh guys we are up to twenty two dollars and fifty one cents twenty two dollars and fifty one cents and um we do have our first uh monthly sponsor if you are interested in being a monthly sponsor of the show you can do that through anchor if whatever podcast feed you're listening to the podcast on there should be a link that shows up in the show notes so mr keith thank you for sponsoring and um so both guys that contacted me today uh both also asked about that so that is available out there Uh, the youtube episodes and and i'm getting feedback from one of you guys the youtube viewerships 250 to 300 per episode within the first week or two of, of it coming out uh tonight I should name this episode the top 40 because we got all the hits. We got all the hits here with us tonight. Uh, tonight, uh, we have Mr. Daryl Bulky. Daryl, if you would say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. All right. Daryl's been on the show before. You should know Daryl. And our next guest doesn't need any introduction because everyone knows who industry luminaries are. <laughs> But, Mr. Dobbs, if you would be kind enough to tell the people who are not grace enough to know of your presence and your stature, who you are. I'm Wayne Dobbs, and I can't believe Rich Grossi said that about me the other day. You know, Masa Yub referred to me as Lee Weems' ace police trainer in an article that he wrote one time, and I almost had business cards made. It just that was all I was going to say. Lee Weems, ace police trainer. I was going to walk around at gun events just handing them out. So, uh, you know, but well, I read when Rich Crossy referred to you as as the industry luminary, and I'm sitting there going, well, yeah, mm-hmm. I know him. That's this <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, Wayne and Daryl own a co-own a training business in Dallas, Texas, and we will get back to that later on. Uh, both gentlemen were also in the class that we reviewed last week with Mr. Larry Mudgett, but uh, unfortunately they couldn't be available for the recording of that episode. And so we're going to start this episode with each of them giving a chance to add anything they want to add uh, to what we said last time. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you can go back and listen to it for a full review of the class. Um, I'm going to throw it first to Daryl because he's got some very personal things he would like to say about Larry and then would like to kind of go into some other information we didn't discuss last time so daryl it's all yours yeah you know the um you've done the uh podcast with kegel in the past talking about you know kind of your your base core training thing that what you're you're basing how you're training on uh, on a system and i was blessed in 1989 that my core system of how i do things came directly from larry mudgett in 1989 uh, I, w- I was assigned to uh, be in charge of training our SWAT team, which I was wholly unqualified for, and pulled some industry connections in through Ron McCarthy to get me out there at LAPD SWAT. With uh, and I spent you know a training week with uh, Larry and the firearms cadre out there at D Team, 
And, you know, I built my, and I talked to people about what, how you build a, uh, how you build a house of your training. And the key to any of that is having an exceptionally good foundation. And Larry Mudgett was my foundation. I mean, Larry and the team of guys he had, um, you know, I had Scotty Reitz back then. I had John Helms. I had Ralph Morton, you know, and others out there that were part of that firearms cadre. And that's what I built my house on. And over the years, I've added rooms to it. I've done a couple kitchen remodels on a few things, but the basic core kind of of everything I do came from Larry. And it was interesting for me to go back out and train with him 30 years plus later. And, you know, but I missed out on a lot of his basic marksmanship because when I went out with him, he was trained in SWAT at that point, they were past sort of the initial ways to train new people. And, but I was well aware of what he did up at the LAPD Academy. And it was just an interesting uh, travel back to how blessed I was to get somebody who teaches at that level. And it was nice for us to be able to invite uh, some industry friends to come up with us and do that course. Uh, the group of guys we had were all personally invited by, by uh, Wayne and I to come up with us because we all felt, you know, that you guys would be a, uh, a good way to spread uh, kind of the way Larry teaches marksmanship. And we all, you know, a bunch of experienced instructors taking a uh, week-long fundamentals, basic A number one course, mainly to see how Larry trains. And I know he appreciated him and I talked a lot before the class. And I said, you know, you're going to get pushed back on some of the stuff from these guys on a few things, but we're really, you know, these guys are paying good money. They're paying, you know, non-discounted, just regular old student fees to come watch you teach. And I think it was appreciated by everybody. Um, you know, I got to say, I think we all saw what firearms training for new people should be, particularly for brand new law enforcement. Uh, we are doing a massive disservice in this country to training cops not training them how Larry trains them. And David and I talked, you know, we had 19 hours in the car together after class to <laughs> review this. And, you know, firearms training needs to be several weeks and, you know, it needs to be on a program like that. The problem is it's hard. And one of the things we picked up from Larry was, you know, when he got to the academy, there was 12 firearms instructors and not at the level he was at. And the first thing they did is got 50 and then brought on, you know, literally mountains of reserves out there to help. But they went from, you know, 12 instructors to 50 selected instructors to teach that program. It is hard work to teach fundamental marksmanship like that. But as we all saw, the payoff is amazing. Yeah, I think once someone nails the pure fundamental marksmanship through a system like his, it's not hard to start doing the other stuff, but until you've nailed that, that fundamental level of stuff, you just can't move on. And unfortunately, every program wants to run and jump right into the other stuff because you nailed it. There's just not any time. You know, my academy class, we have quote range week 
or really we had range two and a half days. We yeah, and the, instructor, and the instructor to student ratios are horrific. Yeah. And, and the instructors that we had just walked behind and said, you're jerking the trigger. You're jerking the trigger. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you're pulling, somebody was pulling a string on, on their back. You're jerking the trigger. And, and I remember one time I asked one, I said, okay, well, how do I fix it? And he said, stop jerking the trigger. And it was all I could do. It was all I could do to go, well, thank you, sir. So I'm, just thank God you were here. And I knew, at, I knew at that point that I was probably pushing it and that uh, that wouldn't have gone well. Uh, yeah. Wayne, I'd like to hear your yes. insights. Well, I, I, there's so many places you could start. Uh, and and Daryl's already hit on it that we are, as a whole in the United States, doing a terrible disservice to the line officers, to the departments and the publics they serve on how we teach in firearms to people. Uh, we're not doing a good job. And in fact, I, I say that most American firearms, or excuse me, most American police training uh, barely hits mediocre. Uh, that's, that's an ugly thing to say, but it is the truth from my perspective. Larry's method takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of devotion to the task. And I don't see that as being the norm in most training operations out there today. There are some exceptions, but they are just that exceptions. Uh, his, his whole structured program of setting the context first uh, with the student of, of what this is all about, where, why we are where we are, what is the purpose of the pistol? In other words, what is its mission? And there is a very specific mission for it. And, and we all know the word. And what was the word? It was unexpected problems. That's what a pistol's for. And he, he's clear about delineating what the, the various missions of various police weapons are. He communicates clearly what the context of the defensive pistol is. He com communicates the mental aspects of the whole thing, the mindset, uh, he communicates the marksmanship principles. He communicates the manipulations principles. And then he takes you out there and for the second day, literally grinds you into the ground on dry manipulations. And if you tried to pull that off in most police academies, they would show you the door at high speed as an instructor, because what they're looking for is a check the box program that gets just about everybody qualified on an unrealistic target at unrealistic times at too close a distances. Uh, he, uh, Larry clearly has a talent and a passion uh, to do that. And I'm no Larry Mudgett, but I, I was sitting there thinking how I had the talent and the passion to do the same thing. And the reception I got was to be slapped down and said to hurry up. So it's, it was, it was a bit gratifying to see that. Uh, one thing that keeps on sticking out at me, and it's not just for the police, it's probably more prevalent or more applicable to us non-law enforcement people. And Daryl, I know you remember this, and Lee, you will too. He said, you need to replace fear with knowledge. And I was, when he said that, I was just like, that is, that's the nugget that I traveled here for. Yeah, I put that in my notes as soon as he said it. I'm like, 
you know, typing it into my phone. Uh, actually, I think yeah. I played that in my computer that day because we were in the classroom when he said that, didn't he? Yes, we were. Uh, I, I saw you writing, and I think I saw everybody's pen or everybody start typing immediately when they said that. Yeah, and it's the truth. Uh, when you when you get right down to it, and it's it's hard to communicate to most people that if you have competence and skill and knowledge and the ability to deal with anything, whatever the situation might be, uh, the most prevalent one we can show it with is driving, is driving under stress or anything, is if we're a good driver, well-trained and, and know how to execute the tasks, then virtually no driving situation is too much for us to handle uh, within the realm of norm or normal. Uh, it's the same thing with, with dealing with bad guys on the street. If you have the skill, the knowledge, and the competence, uh, you, you can handle that. And I think all three of us have, have demonstrated that without having to shoot anybody, you simply, you, you know, you, you take control of a situation. You go to, as Daryl calls it, the Metro draw or the low ready or the guard, whatever you want to call it. And, and it's amazing how the attitudes change. Yeah, and when the bad guy looks at you and, and it's obvious you're prepared for what's about to happen, oh yeah, it shows and they know it. And, you know, there's been a, several times in, in, that I've faced off with a bad guy that if it had actually gone hand to hand, there's no way in the world I could have taken them. Absolutely no way in the world I could have taken them just because they were that much, you know, physically spirited to me and everything. But I could just sit there and look at them and say, well, if you want to go, we're, we're we'll, we'll go, <laughs> but you know, be prepared that, that you're going to get a thump or two or it might not be a, might not be a fist fight. And, you know, that kind of tends to back them off a little bit uh, when they know that, uh, that they're actually up against some prepared opposition. Um, I want to actually go back to Wayne with a question first, because it's going to be a different question uh, for Daryl. Uh, Wayne, I asked all the other guys um, last week, what was the one thing you took away uh, as a teaching tool? And then to follow up with that, what was the one thing you learned about you specifically as a shooter? So I'd like for you to answer both of those. As, as a teaching tool, what I got was something that I had been, I guess, you know, to be critical on me, I had been muddling along with for literally 35 years. Larry has a, a battery of trigger drills. He calls them, I call them, I've always called them interactive trigger drills. I've also heard him called exemplar drills. He call, he used a flight training analogy and said, you share the controls, but he has a battery of four trigger drills that uh, have been out there to actually teach with a feel experience uh, to a student, what proper trigger control feels like. And I had, I had, work my own way through it and, and use those drills for literally 35 years. I first saw them in 1985 in an article he wrote. Uh, it was good to get to stand there with the guy that developed those drills or, or collated those drills and, and had analyzed them and, and presented them. It was great to, uh, to see uh, exactly what the thinking was and exactly what the application was for those drills. And I saw some, some variations on them that I hadn't considered before. Uh, that was, that was one thing that I took away from there, uh, from Larry, from me, <laughs> not arrogant, not, not anything like that, but 
the realization that over the years I have really refined how to press a trigger. Uh, I, I didn't struggle with any of the, the shooting that he showed. And I, I got a kick out of John Hearn. He was, he was buddying with me one time while we were doing trigger drills. And you if you remember on, on, uh, on, uh, it's not ball and dummy. What does he call it? Skip loading. Uh, skip loading. You know, he said, he said, I've got to watch. He said, Wayne, I've got to watch your trigger finger to see when you press the trigger. Cause I can't see any motion in the, in the, in the muzzle or the front side at all. And I, I have, I, I've worked that hard. And I guess part of that, that I took away from it, that was super valuable was the concept. And, and I heard you talking about it on the, the other podcast is that we are making deposits into the bank. We're making an investment by skip loading and dry practice and dry trigger practice drills. And when you're doing a lot of live fire, you're drawing that account down because you may be letting things creep in there that are, that are not fundamentally what they ought to be. So that's, that's what I took away. All right. Uh, Daryl, as you have been a longtime student of Larry, um, and you've been exposed. I know you said you hadn't been to like his basic course. What struck you different in this time and from what you have already seen from Larry? Was like there anything you're like, oh, now a light bulb went well, off or. Yeah, oh, I that's how never, we get here. Go ahead. I mean, I was familiar with how Larry teaches those interactive trigger drills and all that. Um, you know, Wayne and I are old enough and gray enough and Wayne's older than I am. So of pulling all these old articles. I mean, my complete set of fighting firearms is one of those cherished thing of a group of magazines that actually sit in the library. They don't sit in a box somewhere. Um, you know, where a lot of that was published before the old, old NTOA magazine, stuff like that. I have a lot of that still. So I was familiar with Larry doing that, but that's not what I had Larry for was how to teach a SWAT team, how to develop and train a firearm side of a, a, a SWAT team. Now, a lot of the stuff I've gotten over the years is because I've always been fairly close to guys at the LAPD firearms cadre, um, including guys who taught for Larry. I mean, who, who were brought in by Larry as those core firearms instructors. So I'm familiar with it, but it was kind of interesting to go out and get that level of the fundamental side directly from it because what i was getting was how to apply that type of stuff to a swat team who should have basic trigger girls down they didn't but you know his guys were already past that point when i was out there if that makes sense so i didn't get to see a lot of that i got to see how you apply a lot of it but a couple of core things that came away from that is you know I, i've been blessed to you know uh share a training organization with wayne who you know, up until that class, um, I've told people I've never, been, and haven't been on triggers with Wayne. Wayne didn't need that as bad as the rest of us did. Wayne has one of the most refined trigger presses, and I have never felt a better trigger press from anybody until I got on the line. And if you guys saw when he took the volunteer for the very first one for him to get on a trigger with you, I pushed everybody out of the way to get up there first to get make sure that I got on a trigger with Larry and Larry's trigger and in, Larry's input onto a trigger was literally imperceptible. 
And the only one I've ever been on a trigger with like that, that I, that is remotely close is Wayne. And my big takeaway, and a lot of you guys were talking about it because we all found the same thing. And I kind of diagnosed it a little different than everybody else did is how many of us noticed that we have an over-travel problem. Hmm. And the reason we all have an over-travel problem is I think twofold that pointed out, and this is a bunch of people have been teaching for decades, are sitting there identifying problems that we have that were kind of undiagnosed. And the reason is, is like for me in particular, I am a, I am a compulsive flincher. And I'm not a flincher in that I'm afraid of the gun going bang. I'm smart enough to know when that trigger is going to break. And I start setting, I'm, I'm an early recoil anticipator and presetting that recoil and doing some things. And it's a constant fight. It's a lot of reasons why I shoot a DA gun is a lot of that gets taken out. But the reality is I also, and it's gotten particularly bad over the last about decade because my arthritis has gotten so bad in my hands, is Wayne and Larry both shoot with a, a finger that is like a noodle. I mean, there's no, their, 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 their input is so soft they have no real tension in their trigger fingers and you know i was partnered up with kegel who's literally half my age and him and i both shoot with a very very uh you know stiff uh non-supple trigger finger which adds to part of the problem and one of the things this class did because they were so hard on every press of the trigger and how we did it is all of us got rid of any recoil anticipation whatsoever it, it, we got rid of all the pre pre pre-ignition dip of the front sight movement of the front sight we all got rid of that fairly quickly uh just because we were probably good students on having that beat into us and we got we basically got rid of an excuse that's ah, just a little pre-real coil ignition push and we don't really see it when we're out there shooting fast and all these excuses we've been making over the years. The reality is just all of us got rid of that. And then we all found out, oh my God, I got an over-travel problem too. Not only did I have a little push on that, a little dip before it went off, I'm slamming that that trigger into the back of the frame, you know, and I'm getting post-ignition movement as well. And I think that class and being that, detailed on that trigger really helped all of us to really diagnose ourselves which down the road will help us diagnose students um i'm finding i'm actually just a little bit of change on the trigger on i'm going to probably end up replacing or moving my finger a little differently in the trigger that i think will address some of it but that is a pretty high level of diagnosis um you know, a lot of people over the last several years, and I'm going to kind of delve into something a little new here, is none of us liked the way Larry grips a pistol. <laughs> I, I think we're all past that. It's He uses an old cross thumbs. I look at Larry. I look at guys like Paul Howe. I look at uh, Scott Reed. Some of these guys, they don't go out and train with a bunch of other people. They are highly successful at what they do. They are master class level instructors with as much as experience proving their methodology works that they don't need it and i look at these guys the analogy is i'm going to use is that refrigerator that's in the garage that belonged to your grandmother and grandma's refrigerator has been around since the 50s 
and still keep stuff cold perfect. It still works perfect. It doesn't make ice. It doesn't give you water. It doesn't, you don't get to select cubes or, or crushed. Um, it doesn't tell you when the filter needs to be changed because none of that stuff exists. It keeps stuff cold, period. And it does an amazing job of it. It's been doing it for, you know, for, for literally three quarters of a century where now you go buy a brand new something and it's done in three years, the day the warranty runs out or the computer chip fails. So I look at those guys like that. Well, none of us particularly like the way Larry gripped the pistol. Once we started, when you take that factor out, it all comes down to trigger and sights. And that's what Larry really fixes. And the reality that I found investigating all those shootings I did and all the stuff and where I saw failures, when unexpected gunfights took place with law enforcement, you know what the problem 90% of the time was? Grip. grip. So now how do you fix grip? You fix grip with trigger and, and sights. And that's why it's so hard on my guys about that. We have a lot of people teaching now that they've got grip down to the point we're gripping guns that the other controls don't even work. That's how you know we're placing that much emphasis. And you can bang that trigger with a hammer, and the grip is such a death grip on the gun that it'll it'll function and work. But when you take that out of the equation, Larry breaks this down into the little pieces of how we're looking at sights, which for all of us was an eye opener, at how Larry looks at sights versus how we've been looking at sights and teaching it. Larry breaks the trigger down, probably different than all of us have been doing it. And then, and uses Weaver, which has been the most, you know, I've always known what the difference is, but most people don't. They think it's where your feet are, not which, how you're applying pressure. And my thing with Weaver is I use both. If you're inside of a vehicle, you don't have a lot of choice. You're compressed. I'm using isometric tension to stabilize the gun. If I'm using it with a handheld flashlight, I'm using isometric tension to stabilize the gun. If you got a wide open shooting problem, go ahead and use bone and muscle structure to stabilize the gun. Don't care. Doesn't really matter. You can use all of it together. You can some of it, half of it, doesn't matter. But the grip, and the grip is going to be one of those things that if you apply a incredibly efficient grip for the pistol or revolver or the fire handgun you're using, if you apply a very efficient grip to that tool, the whole conversation we had about being one with a machine, I take that a lot of that with grip. You can operate all the controls real easily. You're not interfering with controls and you have maximum purchase on that, that machine. And then you can apply a trigger press like this combined with the way we're looking at sights. And man, you can do some amazing work on those guns amazing work on these guns and that's truly i that was the biggest thing i got out of this man is man one with that machine be it one with your machine yeah you know i commented on it in the in the episode last week with those guys about the over travel that was like the big thing from my personal skill uh point of view was actually diagnosing and seeing how much over travel that i was getting you know Wayne, I don't know if you've listened to that full episode yet. I commented there I where, you, where you made a comment about your trigger finger should be like a limp noodle or something like that. And trigger I made fingers it completely relaxed. I, I made note of that, but I didn't like make, didn't, it didn't register with me in class. And when I got home, you know, I, I got in hand and settled down. I laid down in my bed and that all of a sudden that thought just 
like jarred me back awake. And I got up and I got out a pistol and I dry practiced for a minute. And like, Why didn't I catch this, you know, on the range? You know, because we were getting so much information thrown at us. I think it was just kind of hard, hard to process everything that you were getting. Um, but I could see an immediate difference in the, the reduction in over travel just from doing that. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been on the relaxed trigger finger bandwagon for many, many, many years. I don't know how long I, I know this, that uh, a good solid grip and a relaxed trigger finger and a straight back press, you get good results. If I find a shooter and I'll, I'll walk the line and Daryl's watched me do it in classes and uh, I'll sit there and grab trigger fingers or feel trigger fingers while they're on the, you know, the, while they're in register and man, you'll find some guys that, they're putting 20 pounds of pressure on the side of the frame with a trigger finger. And I'm like, dude, relax that thing. Get it, get it all loose and limp. Because if I find somebody that's doing that 100% of the time, they will have a God awful anticipation or flinch or whatever you want to call it. Because what they're doing is combining, they're combining trigger effort with grip effort. And that is physically going to move that gun off the line of sight and, and cause a bad shot. It's, it's, you can take it to the bank every time you see it. If you can get them to relax the trigger finger, uh, they will do much better. And in fact, I, I'll ask a lot of these guys because you can sit there and look at their their physique and see that they work hard. And I say, are you using captains of crush grip strength builders or stuff like that? And they're like, oh, yeah. And they talk, I, I can, I'm up to a number of whatever, number three or whatever, whatever impossible number there is out there. And I'm like, so do you use your index finger when you're doing that? And they're like, yeah. And I says, quit doing that. Because <laughs> you're teaching your index finger to be overpowering on the trigger, just do the other three fingers, and they're like, they look at you like, well, I can't do as high a number if I do that because they got so much grip effort with that index finger. But shooting, you know, shooting a pistol well, and I'll steal Larry Vickers saying that I heard from him, God, 15 years ago now, I guess. He said shooting a pistol is simple, but it's not easy, and he's right. There is a lot of technique in it. And I think because of that, that involvement of technique and power, you know, you got to have powerful grip and loose finger and technique on sights and trigger press, et cetera. Uh, it doesn't lend itself to something that we can institutionalize and teach in an academy setting to the level we really need to. And certainly you look at it in the military and it doesn't take place. And uh, it, it's, it is a, it's a, it's a high, high threshold of achievement to get that done. There you go. All right. Before we move on to our next topic, Wayne, do you have anything else you want to say about the Larry class? It was uh, four days of the hardest training work I've done in a long, long time. All right, Daryl? Yeah, we were, we were beat. But, but old, <laughs> just beat. And then, you know, the problem is you can't cry about it because Larry's 74. You know? I know. And then, I, you know, I, he I had think, to be hurting. Yeah. And then you, you look at, um, you know, you, when Larry came down and got onto my pistol when we were doing that, uh, you know, reaction drill off the timer and hammers a 1-1, one, one, a 1-2, one, a 1-1, one, one, a 1-1, one, one, and a 1-1 one, one on that wagon trigger. <laughs> and we're all sitting there going, he's 74, and he's throwing these, you know, these 1-1s one, out like they're nothing on reaction time. And you're going, oh, my goodness. But, you know, one of the benefits that I picked up that I didn't realize before was Larry's background as a pilot. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, he relates a lot back. And that, that really struck with me because at one point in my life, I did learn how to actually fly an MB-500 uh, helicopter. That was my daily ride to work and was in my best interest to learn how to fly good in case one of those pilots took a dive. And, you know, I, it, that a lot of this is, is obviously came from there because getting on controls with each other to instruct and very soft inputs. I can usually pick up people who are good pilots because their inputs on, on, on machines tend to be very light. They're precise, but very light. There's not a lot of uh, hammering on stuff. And uh, inputs are slow, very controlled. Um, even when they're doing stuff fast, it's extremely controlled. And, you know, I kind of got a lot out of this as far as uh, watching, getting on the controls with Larry and feeling Larry's inputs on controls set a very good example of what this is supposed to look like. And, you know, my only goal at this point is not to be out teaching when I'm 74. I need to make sure I'm doing something else at that point because, yeah, I, could, I couldn't do it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be teaching four-day classes at that level, uh, you know. And, is, and, you know, the other thing, too, is, uh, you know, as instructors, you know, the instructor ratio, we had coaches with us. I mean, we were at what a you know two to one ratio with with instructors you know every two students we had one and one at least you know ai with too which was which is impressive so mm-hmm. yeah good program it's it, like i said it's it's how we should be training new shooters and the sad thing is the people who really need that class are most brand new shooters that's if you could take people you you want to you want to learn to shoot you want to buy a gun and own a firearm and be a uh, you know, good American and be able to take, you know, empower yourself to take care of your own and your own family's safety. That's the class everybody should get first. And, you know, the problem is, you know, it, it, it isn't cheap and it's four straight days out of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of work that I think most people won't put in. Now he has very good success with, you know, very, very new raw shooters, but it takes some dedicated ones to get there first and you know sadly we have a problem probably in this country of a lot of people getting horrific firearms training early on that has to be undone and uh you know like i said i was blessed to have larry you know 30 years ago before i was too tar- too far down the uh you know down the road to not fix it and uh i had less to correct from of a few years rather than you know a few decades of uh doing things wrong you know, he made a comment about uh, taking a motorcycle riding class. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how he'd been riding a motorcycle for several years. And then he went to a class and realized that he didn't know how to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> motorcycle and, Safety Foundations class. Yeah, And that point kind of stuck in the back of my mind. I, I've been doing firearms training for getting close to 23 years now. And there were a couple of times in the class, it was kind of like, wow. I wish I had known this right from the start or as I began teaching people, there's a couple of things, you know, in his methodology, like I wish I had, had known this then. And, uh, you know, thankfully I get a pretty good laboratory of getting to work with students on a repeated basis. And so I'll be able to implement this, uh, you know, a lot of his methodology right from the start. And so I'm kind of curious to see how that's going to make things easier for me and how much more quickly the students are going to progress over you know some of what we're now calling traditional uh, firearms training all right 
a couple of episodes ago, Daryl came on and he talked about the spread of the, the modern technique through the, through the West coast agencies. And then uh, Shane Gosa and I were on and he was talking about his personal relationship with Jeff Cooper and Shane's a Georgia lawman like I am. And he and I got to talking and doing some digging and some research. And the best we can tell is that the, the, methodology that the Georgia Fire Georgia Public Safety Training Center has adopted came out of John Shaw's Mid-South Institute and Rogers and was kind of melded together. And so I guess that's kind of where my shooting lineage goes. Well, so we've done West Coast, we've done East Coast, now it's time to go to the Republic. So Wayne, I want <laughs> I, I want you to kind of fill the audience in on what was going on in texas with firearms training at the same time daryl was out doing his thing on the west coast and that the guys who trained shane and i were doing here in, in the southeast so thinking about that uh, there were a couple of influences that were going on in texas maybe three at the time that i started in law enforcement in the late 70s uh, one of them was clearly texas dps there was a larger than life figure there and he was huge. He was, he looked like Bill Jordan too. His name was Reeves Junkin and he ran Texas DPS firearms. He, Reeves was about six, seven, uh, big old German boy from Lano and had fingers, had a hand that when he shook my hand and I've got a big hand, it just disappeared. And Reeves would, would open up DPS firearms training. He'd have all the, the trooper recruits sitting on, on, uh, bleachers and he would say men. And it was all men. There were no women at that time. He'd say men, there are some sorry sons of bitches out here that need killing. And I'm going to show you how we do it. And that was how he would commence DPS firearms training with, uh, model 28 Smiths lever action, 30 thirties and, uh, eight seventy pump shotguns. And it was firearms training was about six weeks uh, spread throughout the academy. And it was largely, you know, Reeves was a, was a champion, uh, PPC shooter. He was a, he was a Python tuner par excellence. And so a lot of his was, was focused around very precise use of a revolver. But, uh, Reeves, I have to say, did an astounding job with Texas DPS because they were, and still are involved in a lot of officer involved shooting incidents. And they do a very good job all said and done. Uh, they, they've only, to my uh, way of thinking, have only gotten better over the years. And they're still well lit out there. Although Reeves Junkin is no longer there, obviously. In fact, he's, he's long, long deceased. Uh, and his, his ways and his beliefs uh, hastened his retirement. How about that? Um, he was, uh, he was anti-semi-automatic and he was anti-female trooper. And, uh, both of those were, were moves that he was not going to stop and, uh, and eventually did him in. Another angle on this was, uh, FBI firearms instruction. Uh, back in that time, there was another semi-force of nature by the name of Robert P. Butler, uh, Bob Butler, and he was the primary firearms instructor at the FBI Dallas division and Butler was a friend. Uh, he was a, he was a mentor and a, a, a colleague and a friend. Uh, I spent several years at the end of his career as a task force officer at the FBI on an organized crime task force. So, uh, I got to pick Bob's brain quite a bit 
Uh, it was also coincidentally right after the 86 Miami shootout uh, that killed two agents and wounded several others. And so Bob and I, uh, I got to stand literally by his side while information came in and things were discussed about firearms training and ammunition and, and uh, weapons technology. But what Bob did was he went around Texas back then uh, teaching firearms instructor schools to various agencies, sheriff's offices, police departments, uh, regional police academies. And he created quite the following. Uh, and Bob was a good shooter. It was revolver based. Uh, he was very practical. He, he talked about, he wasn't talking about modern technique, but he was, he was talking about getting flash sight pictures and rolling triggers straight to the rear on revolvers. So that was, uh, that was a huge influence. The third influence was NRA police firearms instruction, as far as, uh, firearms instructor certification. And it was, it was there but it, it didn't have the impact that the, say the DPS model and the, the FBI model had. Uh, you had big agencies in, in Texas, namely Dallas, San Antonio, and uh, Houston that shot a lot of people back in that era. Uh, Dallas was probably having 150 officer involved shootings a year uh, back in the eighties and nineties. They, uh, they had a pretty good cadre of, of instruction and they had, uh, leapt onto a, a training methodology called the Greg fire control method, which was a target focused shooting inside of say five or seven yards. Uh, and the guy's name was Jim Greg. He was from Oregon or something like that, but Dallas locked onto that and, and started using that methodology and, and did very, very well. Now, Looking at all of this, whether it's the transition to auto pistols or the Jim Gregg method or now the move into dot optics on pistols, you know, we, we look at that and say, well, when we did this, you know, things started going a lot better and we had a lot better success. And I'm wondering if the technology is not the important part. I'm wondering if the fact is, is that we took everybody and we spent time working on their fundamental approaches and, and gave them some actual repetition uh, at doing the job right and, and, and polished them up a bit, as Paul Howe would say, uh, if, if the actual training, the intensive training didn't give us what we got instead of the technology. So that's, that's my perspective on it. Okay, you know, funny you mentioned the FBI's. That used to be a core mission of the FBI was to train state and local agencies. Yes. And they have gotten away from that to a large degree. Yeah, they have. Um, Butler, Butler was a shining example of that. Yeah. It, we had a guy in California named Ron Fregolti, uh, who I had in the academy as a firearms instructor. Um, I was the only cadet that got asked by the instructors. I used to shoot with them at lunch during the academy. Uh, I, I must have been doing something right. Because uh, I was invited with the guy from the FBI and the instructors to shoot with them. But, um, you know, Ron was a real powerhouse in California as far as teaching a lot and stuff. And, and you know, Ron was, was kind of like a lot of us is, you know, everybody looked at him like he was insane. And he kind of was. Um, he used to do funny stuff at the academy, throw dead rabbits and helicopters when the sheriff's helicopters land and, you know, sorts of crazy stuff. 
but you know, most of those guys, and I'm going to venture Wayne's, uh, Wayne's FBI counterpart down there was the same thing as, uh, Ron was despised by his own organization. Um, these yeah. guys did not get along with the mothership of the FBI. I think as they took all the crazy gun guys and it's like, yeah, you guys are going to go and teach at the, you know, sheriff's Academy and wherever you're at, and, you know, we'll kind of get rid of you. Um, yeah, Ron yeah. did not fit the mold of an FBI agent. He was one of the few I got along really well with. So, um, yeah, it's, it was kind of a different thing, but yeah, very influential. And particularly in those revolver days, they, uh, you know, they had a pretty good, good, good uh, methodology for teaching, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I first stumbled along upon people like Tom Givens and you guys and, and all of the, the circle that, that I now get to run around with, um, I study biographies because I like these are the guys that I want to emulate and be like. So I started studying the biographies, like what classes did they take and what training did they get? because they're the recognized experts, how did they get there? And one of the things that I used to see in a lot of the, the guys from, from that era was the FBI firearms instructor class. Mm-hmm. And so I began searching and searching and searching. And finally I stumbled upon uh, one in Alabama. And so I contact the people and I sign up and go. And um, this would have been about 2013. And so I spent two weeks in Gadsden, Alabama, and the lead instructor for the class was a, a female agent who was 30-something years on at that point in time. Her name was Vicki Davis, and um, she made a point of saying in front of the whole class, like, look, the FBI's core mission, part of one of our things we're supposed to be doing is training state and local law enforcement, and we've abandoned that. And she said she had been trained by an agent up in upstate New York that had beat it into her head that the FBI was supposed to be doing that and that she was going to keep doing it as long as she retired. She said there was one other agent currently active somewhere in the U.S. that was of the same mentality. That They were the only two out really strongly training uh, folks. And as a testament to her dedication, we had a government shutdown in the middle of the class and she got sent a directive to close the class down and go home. And she's like, oh, I've been here 32 years. What are they going to do, fire me? For working for free <laughs> she stayed and ran the rest of the class good and um i had a talk with a very highly highly ranked fbi agent uh, probably two years ago now and he was kind of how can we kind of re-solidify our relationship with with the local guys and my answer to them was you used to train why mm-hmm. don't you start doing training? I said, I'll volunteer our agency. I'll do the legwork as far as like all the class registrations and all that kind of stuff. You guys will just have to show up and teach. I'll have your targets and everything. And it just hasn't come to fruition. And I can't blame him for that because as we all know, the wheels get rolling sometimes and that's just where it goes. But, you know, I think it, you can stick a fork in that Lee. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I, they're all about terrorism and everything else now, and then it's just going to be there's nothing else for them. Um, you, you look, and I don't want to get too far down this road of the politics stuff, but you know, there's had to been other agencies either created or their roles expanded to take up things that the FBI used to do. Yeah, that's true. And with you know, to talk about firearms training in law enforcement, uh, it is dismal virtually everywhere uh we are not teaching people to shoot we are teaching people to make piles of fired brass 
uh, I, I submit that we could pull in any kind of representative specimen or cross-section of, of troops and, and just give them, oh, hell, have them shoot a 10-round test or have them shoot a five-yard roundup, uh, anything like that, and, and just watch the train drive off the tracks. Uh, there's, there's not a fundamental basis for most of them. Uh, most of them are train wrecks with regard to manipulations. Uh, clearly, most of the uh, or many of the fights you see taking place is clear that there's no mindset or, or tactical thinking involved. It's just there. And, and I'm afraid that what we're going to see as time goes on, and Daryl and I have talked about what we see as the future of policing in the United States, and it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. I, 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 I really am sad because it's something that Daryl, you and I poured our hearts and our souls and our bodies into to try to achieve things. And we did achieve good things uh, all said and done. And it's like it was for naught. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things we picked up, you know, Larry went through the same stuff all of us did. You know, when Larry left, you know, they dismantled everything. You know, when Scott Reeds left, dismantled everything. Took my agency six months to dismantle everything. But, you know, you had these people, a lot of these agencies, wherever they were. And when we talked about the West Coast things, you know, you had the, the guys like Bill Jeans, you know, out there. You had the, uh, you know, um, you know, programs like uh, Arcadia, Huntington Beach, you know, some of these mid-sized agencies that had their their big personality guy at the range, with, you know, Burbank's another one, you know, who mm -hmm. were running these ramshod programs that were phenomenal, but you were never going to promote out of it, you know. We all share that thing of, you know, no, not on the Chief's Christmas card list, you know. Nobody's <laughs> favorite. Everybody remembers us for being horrible to them on the range and having all these standards and accountability. And, you know, but we had good programs. Um, you know, Larry and those guys did a great job with their program, but they were de dealing with Metropolitan Division, and that was it. And then, you know, finally when Larry got up to the academy, you know, it was literally kind of a force of nature. And they knew what they were getting when they recruited Larry up there. Um, you know, Lou Salcido, great dude. The guy who started Salcido brought Larry up was a phenomenal yeah. figure at LAPD. And, uh, you know, but, you know, again, it's like, uh, yeah, I can't do this with 12 people. I need 50. Uh, Larry, we can't give you 50. No, uh, we got to have 50. You know, they got 50. But believe me, somebody downtown will never forget that, you know, they had put 38 heavyweight, you know, selected people you know get yanked out of wherever they were to go up there and do the range program for larry and you know instantaneously all that stuff ends up going away at some point with the personality so i just don't see a lot of um you know it's it's not a good thing to be uh you, you know it's hard to commit career suicide and it's sad that any of these le firearms programs if you want to do well with it you got to commit career suicide to do it and uh that is not in thing right now at all and uh it's not bred in and you know especially when you got people who are coming from environments where you know it's not a calling to them this is a calling what we do is a calling you know and if, and if it's not and so a lot of these range programs are filled up with target graders and powerpoint readers you know people who wasn't a calling for them it wasn't a passion it wasn't they're not out spending you know, I got six figures into the amount of training I've done myself out of my own pocket. You know, 
a lot of other people got, you know, uh, you know, Harleys and other stuff and whatever. They don't have six figures worth of going and spending their own time and dime to go train. It's just not a thing. And you got to do that. If And that's a sad thing. It's a sad state of affairs you know, in law enforcement that that's how it has to be. And Larry was sort of a shining example of the level you have to sacrifice to do this well. And, you know, the other thing back in the day, you had to sort of prove yourself as a cop to be the firearms dude people would listen to you know larry's got two medals of valor um that were hard-earned ones those weren't second place medals of valor or 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 community uh you know didn't get a medal of valor for his community policing that week um (laughs) you know you know larry was larry was erasing evil you know from the planet that's what larry was doing to get those and you know there's a lot of that. I think, uh, you know, we're missing a ton of that now that, you know, a lot of these become retirement jobs for people who can't cut it, who haven't cut it, who haven't cut the mustard, who haven't, you know, can't talk with any level of experience and failures. How much did you learn over Larry's class from stories that weren't just war stories? They were examples of, Hey, the reason I teach this is because of this. If you didn't get something out of Larry talking about that officer involved shooting and watch one of his partners get killed right in front of him and ended up kind of taking the guy's gun and working through reloads in the middle of that whole, I mean, you know, if that didn't strike you as, oh, here's a guy who maybe knows something, you know, versus what we're listening to now in internet world of, you know, scariest thing I ever did is my mommy didn't leave the light on for me when I came home late. Is their you know level of experience they're talking from? You know, when you're talking to guys like Larry and you know, for me, Larry, Scotty, John, I mean you sit there and you just shut up and listen because it's all coming from a basis of experience. And mm-hmm. now Larry's talking to you instructionally from a basis of experience of not just penciling out that we qualified ten thousand people this quarter. They trained them they were getting them trained, which is, it says a lot. Um, and then all you need to do is look at the performance now versus then. And it's a different thing. So there's a lot to be learned from a lot of this. And I think those FBI agents they were putting in to these local firearms programs back then, uh, training programs were actually some pretty experienced agents at doing, at doing literally, you know, these are guys who had been in gunfights, our era, they had all been to Vietnam, you know, they were guys like Larry that had uh, extensive combat experience overseas, stuff like that. We were getting some really good FBI guys instructing us. I, I'm not going to see how much of that we're going to get these days. So, you know, it's kind of a different era. Hopefully we can, we can preserve it. It's why we're spending so much time and effort on Kegel. You know, it's like the, <laughs> absolutely. You know, we are That's not a joke. Yeah. No, it's That's not a, not a joke. Yeah. We are literally setting up Kegel to leave our business to. You know, yeah. you're you are going to be the mantle carrier of the future of of doing this stuff. So we're going to drag you to all the people we learned from. And you know, for that kid, you know, spending a lot of time with Paul Howe, Larry Mudgett, John Helm, Scott Reitz. You know, he had some time with Jr. Uh, John Ray out there at L.A. Uh, Dean Caputo. <laughs> you know, we're getting him dipped in deep. You know, with with a lot of these legendary folks, you know, um, you know, taking classes with Gelhouse, that type of thing. It, everybody needs at least one drink during the show, so I had to say Gelhouse once. But you know, to, <laughs> to, 
to carry this stuff on some some pretty serious uh, experienced people to learn from. Um, and most of us got all that experience through failure. That's where all the wisdom comes from. Yeah. And, uh, you know, boy, you know, Larry, the, a lot of the funny stuff was some of the failures. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was, I got a lot out of that class and just hearing the failure stories. When I had them in 89, I was like, David, I was a you know 24 year old idiot. And, uh, you know, Larry was a lot meaner than, I mean, he was a lot meaner. <laughs> you, 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 you were almost afraid to ask a question because, you know, you guys saw when he got fired up a little, he was always fired up back then and had really no patience for, for anything. You just sat and listened to what he had to say and just did it without blinking. So it was pretty good stuff. Yeah. I, I tell yeah. Kegel, Kegel and Lane Thayer all the time. It's up to you two. Yeah, you know, I, we're going to be like, to you. And so it's going to be up to you to I, save the world. Go ahead, Wayne. My, my thing with Kegel, uh, and I, I told him this not long ago, and I know Daryl's told him this. The kid is open minded. He's, uh, he's intelligent. He's well spoken. He's well educated. He's an excellent shooter. He's interested. Uh, I, and I basically told him, I says, what you need to do is just work the path you're on and don't screw up. You know, we all, we all have some things that we can look at and say, my God, I can't believe I pulled that or did that. But, uh, I, I see David Cagle as truly a future, uh, figurehead and prominent person in American firearms training. Uh, I believe he's, he's got all of the attributes that it takes that simply need to be uh, polished by experience and, and learning and considering to, uh, uh, to, or working on learning more and developing his level of wisdom. And I think he will be, uh, I think he will be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. It's good to see a kid like that. You know, you, you sit there and, and I know Daryl and I both look at him and think and see part of ourselves in him, you know, just from the, the, the youth and enthusiasm. But I, I think he, uh, I think he will be one of the ones. He, yeah. he, he literally frightens me on how, uh, how much he, him and I are alike. I mean, it is literally, especially at that age, it is just scary talking about childhoods and weird stuff we did, you know? <laughs> and so it's like, you know, the weird kid is, you know, like four reading the encyclopedia and memorizing, mm-hmm. you know, you know, ancient Greek battles and stuff like that. I'm like, Oh right. my God, there's another one. <laughs> except for Daryl. And, my, my, get... and my wife, you know, my wife knew me in high school and she's got, Oh my God, he is just like you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, except Daryl Cagle may actually get promoted beyond corporal. Yeah, no, he'll, yeah, he'll be, no, that, that's going to be the thing is, uh, with the, the wisdom we're trying to impart with him is don't be completely like us or how to, how to temper things a little bit to, you know, put yourself in a position to make, um, you know, to make things happen rather than just, uh, doing them and, and, you know, the approach of ramming your head through the door is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, if he was in position of power somewhere and had some, uh, executive uh stroke behind him he could really make something of uh of something great so and he's trying to do that now that little agency he's with i mean i'm going to go up there 
Um, he's got me fully recruited on board. We're going to start doing classes. He's doing stuff with his guys. He's already showing that, you know, it's going to be, well, I'm going to take my little police department. We're going to be the best trained guys in this area. And, you know, he's working his tail off towards that goal. And, you know, that's what we've all done. We want to put people out there who are good representatives. And, uh, you know, we uh, take force very seriously in how we use it and uh, exercise and yeah, I just had a class this weekend and kind of when I spilled on the class, I go, you guys do know that, you know, attempted homicide, homicide is a crime of the highest order every place in this country. Every time you press that trigger, you are committing the deepest felony there is. And, you know, everybody's glad. Well, but what if it's no, you got to find a subsection to justify it in there. The reality is that's the level of seriousness. You need to take this every time you press a trigger for real. And that you better be pretty sure one of those subsections applies to you before you do it. And, you know, trying to find people who will teach at that level of seriousness, uh, you know, is hard. It's hard. It's, uh, and it's, to me, uh, you know, social media is making it worse every day of how serious we need to take this stuff that doesn't, you know, it becomes uh, 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 entertainment versus, you know, pretty, pretty serious uh, consequence with every time we, we uh, pick up a firearm. Uh, Wayne likes to say, it's one of my favorite Wayne Dobbs quotes, is every time you touch one, you're making a life, death, and financial decision. And, you know, my thing is, in the real world, every time you press a trigger, you're committing the highest level of felony, and you better better be able to uh, find a subsection that applies to you in the penal code for why that was justified. And, you know, if you can do that at some sort of uh, – olympic level speed that's great but you know for most of us it, it's a lot of work to get that depth of understanding so trying to just pass all that stuff on to the people who want it and kind of ignoring the people who don't you know you'll figure it out the hard way <laughs> so. yeah and that kind of leads me and leads us into the last thing i wanted to discuss tonight um you two guys are well known for you know your focus on assessment Mm-hmm. And, you know, assessing while shooting or set well, assessing whether you need to shoot and then assessing while shooting and you know just go back to an anecdote from from the larry class he and john helms as we discussed in the last episode and, and is well documented out in history they who took the mozambique from gunsight renamed it the failure drill and then spread that across uh, the west coast and then it's become known to everybody and you know daryl you touched on social media out there and it's, you get all these people out there they're trying to shoot two to the body and one to the head as absolutely as fast as they can go and as fast as they can get it done and folks that is not a failure drill that's shooting two to the body and one to the head as fast as you can do it all right don't call it a failure drill because that's not what it is and you know wayne and daryl were standing there when i asked the question of the man who formulated the drill and you know because he's explaining the the failure drill to us and i and i was i was actually kind of scared to ask the question because i didn't know if i was going to get him to revert back to 1985 mean larry for a second or not and you know you come out you fire two to the head and then you go into the head still there and you, you make the shot and and so i said sir if you've already programmed yourself to fire three shots when you come out of the holster. Isn't it a chance that you're not going to stop and assess that the head's still there. You're just going to fire that third shot, like off in the space. Cause the guy's already fallen down or he's quit. And he looked at me like, well, yeah, that was, 
you know, and he caught himself, I think, right before he slipped into, you know, of course that's the case. Did you catch that, Daryl? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a, I, I feel bad about doing it now um, because I, I, I kind of violated one of the Daryl rules of you don't put certain stuff on the internet uh, because you need to come at this point. I work too hard for it and it's not appreciated. So you can come take a class and we'll explain this stuff to you. The reality is I did that article on uh, why the hammer pair and, uh, and I did it because one of the guys I trained, uh, executed a perfect, a textbook, perfect failure drill, uh, in the field, saved his life, saved a bunch of people's lives years ago. And that guy committed suicide recently. And him and I had uh, debriefed that shooting a lot and a lot of training stuff. And I felt I owed it to him as sort of a legacy. And I kind of now regret that thing going out on the internet because Greg Elifritz asked me, he asked for permission to share it, which I certainly granted him. And then of course it got shared elsewhere. And the reality of the stupidity that I am seeing from people on that of trying to explain why you do it. I've spent a lot of years diagnosing why you do certain things and how we do them. The reality of that accelerated pair, which is the term Larry uses that I like, that Wayne, you know, we're, we're pretty down with that accelerated pair. Um, hammer pair we use because that was the gun sight terminology that most people learned. Mm. You know, the whole idea of that, of firing two rounds and then it with one sight picture is because you can cheat your eyes faster to the head. So you're assessing that drill allows you to assess faster, not to shoot faster. The whole idea is it allows you to assess faster so you can shoot less. You can already set that sight track. If that head is moving, if the head's still there, it lets you, it lets you cheat ahead on doing assessment at a higher level. And it's so lost on people, you know, recently to have some, some doof on the internet, um, you know, telling me and Carl ran, you know, Oh, did you guys have to Google that hammer pair? Are, are you kidding me? You know, th this is what we're down to. And this is some deep level stuff that we take again, very seriously. And we're trying to get to the point of helping people to better assess to better exercise the use of lethal force, to better be accountable for, you know, shooting at assessment speed, accountability speed, and all of that, rather than pure speed. Hey, I'm if you can do this stuff wicked fast with perfect assessment and, per and high level accountability, knock yourself out. You're my hero. But I find that most people can't. And, you know, so when we try to sit there and, and, you know, the, the two things Wayne and I absolutely hammer on is safety and accountability. And it gets a lot of that stuff gets lost. It's not cool. And that was part of the nice thing of that class last week um, is how much emphasis was placed on safety and accountability. <laughs> and, you know, it's our thing. And, you know, I'm blessed. I'll turn it over to Wayne. I, I am blessed to be able to teach with one of the, 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 the I, I think just short of Larry is, I, I think Wayne is the best mark, flat marksmanship instructor around. And, you know, that's why I've always focused more on the gun handling side of things and the tactics. We divide stuff up. So I sort of deep dive on a lot of this stuff on how can we faster assess? How can we better maneuver? How can we do things safer and with higher level of accountability? And, you know, that's our push. And, 
And like I said, that was kicked into my head by guys like Larry Mudge, Matt Reitz, and John Helms, and Pat Rogers, and Bill Jeans. And I'm blessed for it, and I'm going to try and pass it on. But, boy, social media makes it tough. It makes it very tough. And now I'll let Wayne rant. <laughs> it's all yours, Wayne. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to rant. Uh, Luminaries but... don't have to rant. They just yeah, live yeah, right. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. I, I wonder, is there a ribbon I can put on my suit for that, for on my lapel, <laughs> you know? I, I need a ribbon. Uh, you know, Daryl's already covered a lot, but the fact is, is that overwhelming everything uh, with regard to firearms, whether it's in the home, hunting, at the range, or in the street, uh, is the issue of safety. And, and people want to People want to push that aside and say, well, well, when things are dangerous, I don't need to worry about this safety rule or that safety rule. And we can show you all kinds of examples of where that doesn't work and where it creates a, where it creates a mess, uh, creates a tragedy, creates an unneeded shooting or somebody getting hurt. So the safety rules always apply. Even in the, in the heat of combat, the safety rules apply. Uh, accuracy and precision. And I, I was, I did a, did a podcast with uh, Brian Eastridge a few weeks ago and, and talked about precision uh, and, and precision and accountability go hand in hand. Uh, you can't be firing shots that aren't hitting. You can't be doing that because first of all, uh, it's losing the fight for you. Uh, you're, you're wasting your time and you're not stopping an attack and, and things are going to spin out of control. The other thing is it puts the public at risk. Uh, it puts other officers at risk. It puts the, the citizens that are in the, the vicinity at risk. Uh, one of the things I throw out at people, and Daryl's heard me say it dozens of times, is, is uh, especially if we get some officers in a class or we have, we're talking to officers to say, I want you to think about the last five or 10 operational shootings your department has had or that have taken place with agencies in this area. And I'll say, where did they happen? What were the circumstances? Where was this? Where was that one? Where was that one? And they all take place overwhelmingly on parking lots and on street sides, a few in alleys, some of them inside structures, but not too many. And I said, so if we uh, took a portable target and uh, a target frame and, and set up a target at that location and drove out there right now with a magazine of ammo and a shooter, would you want to hold a training drill right there? And they're all horrified at the prospect of setting up a, you know, a target frame in a Walmart parking lot or a 7-Eleven or whatever and, and shooting a, a magazine of ammo. I say, well, if, if that's not okay to do a training drill there, then it's not okay to be missing in a fight with because there's no backstops and there's downrange hazards. So the accountability issue always looms huge and people don't want to acknowledge that. They want to feel like, uh, oh, well, if I miss in this gunfight on this city street, well, that bullet just turns into a butterfly and flutters to the ground and doesn't cause any problems for anybody. doesn't work. Um, and, and it, it basically is a rule for violation when you get right down to it. Uh, and that is, is that you have, you have failed to, uh, you fail to consider your, your scene and your backstop and the circumstances before you fired. Uh, with regard to assessment, uh, if you're shooting, I'm, I'm just going to step out here and, and make a flat statement. If you're shooting faster than a 0.30 split, you're shooting faster than you can react or assess or change your path. 
uh, we we have that is a physical that is a physical truth. Human reaction time hovers around 25 hundredths to 30, 30 hundredths of a second. If you're shooting shots faster than that, then you're shooting faster than you can change your actions. Uh, just like the fire drill properly done, you fire two center hits. If the head is still there, then you deliver the head shot. If the head's not there, then you know the two shots worked in some form or fashion. If you're shooting faster than that and moving to that head shot faster than that 30, 0.3 split time, I hate to even use the term, uh, then what you've done is you've outrun your headlights. And there is a very prominent trainer out there now that did it with a rifle, and he will tell you straight up front that he shot too fast. He, he had trained to shoot super fast splits, and so he did in a fight. And uh, he fired one or two shots downrange with a carbine uh, that shouldn't have been launched. So the, the use of a firearm, whether it be rifle, pistol, or shotgun in an operational shooting is not something that should be happening with a lot of rapidity as far as the volume of shots or the speed of shots. It should be done with a lot of discipline and a lot of precision and a lot of assessment uh, so that you don't get yourself or somebody else in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I did an experiment down in our range, and, and I may have talked about this in another episode. I'm not sure. I know we've both talked about it in, in a phone conversation. Where I, I set up a target, went to seven yards, and I fired two to the chest, one to the head. And I did several iterations was I went as fast as I could go. Yeah, fast draw, hit the split as quick as I could, did the transition and fired the shot as quickly as I could. And then I did a number of iterations where I drew, fired the first shot, confirmed my sights for the second shot, made a decision to fire did a transition, confirmed my sights for the third shot, made a decision to fire. And the difference in those two ways of doing it, over three shots, over three shots was 0.29. Mm -hmm. That's about right. And because you probably fired the splits. Your, your split time on the pair was probably around mm, 0.35 to 0.4, maybe a little higher. And then your split time to the headshot was probably about 0 0.5, 0 0.6. Yeah, when I, when I was going as hard as I could get, you know, like going just for pure speed, uh, my split to the second shot was run coming in at about 0.26, and my transition was coming in at about 0.54. Yeah. And when I was shooting it, where I was confirming my sights and making a conscious decision to fire each shot, my split time to the second shot was at 0.4, and my transition was at 0.6. Something we badly overlook, and when we're doing range firearms training, square range firearms training, we have a target in front of a shooter, and we tell them, hey, Daryl, you shoot number two, and I'll shoot number three, and Lee, you shoot number four, and don't cross fire, et cetera, and all that. And so that target is static when we shoot it, correct? We say, okay, I want you to fire a pair on this target. And you come up, and you fire a pair, and then – you, you move to the head and fire a good head shot. And we, we turn around and pat ourselves on the head and say, you know, that was a, that was a nice failure drill. The problem with that is, and we all know it is the first time you stuck a bullet in somebody's torso, they're not going to be at that spot for the second go around. You're going to have to reacquire. You're going to have to get sights on another spot, uh, on that, on that adversary 
for the second shot. And the same, you're going to have to do it again for the third shot, which is why Daryl and I play a game and we work a drill called a split failure all the time to uh, try and simulate that. some. But the fact is, is that you can sit there and work on your, your hottest pair and, uh, your, your first shot may be a good one, but your second shot's going to be a miss or peripheral hit. And your third one, you're going to have to be hunting for. So you, you shoot at assessment speed, you shoot where the threat is and not where you think, you know, training on and on a static target may set you up for unrealistic expectations. Yeah. Um, you know, you, when you were talking just before that, and you were talking about running the drill on the Walmart parking lot. I was struck mm-hmm. by, you know, we've been talking about cop stuff all night long, by and large, from that perspective. But for the private citizen, <clears throat> you're more likely to be involved in a self-defense situation in a parking lot of a gas station, a grocery store, mall right. parking lot, or something like that, than you are somebody kicking in your door and coming in, into your house. Right. And so that's the standard that you need to be trained into as well. And I just wanted to touch on that because if our listeners and the folks on YouTube say, well, they're talking about cop stuff. I, I'm a private citizen. Apply. No, 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 no. It very much applies to you. And I'll throw it back to each of you uh, if you want to touch on that a little bit more. You know, we, uh, we tell people that, you know, we've been accredited uh, with pretty much the whole idea that, you know, our first responder classes are not just for law enforcement. We use law enforcement, you know, a lot of terminology training stuff, because that's all the people who are going to be judging you are from that world. But the reality is 3 a.m. in your, uh, you know, your living room, you know, you're, you're the first responder. Uh, equally, you know, you're sitting there gassing your car at the uh, neighborhood watering hole. And one of the uh, one or several of the local hyenas decide to make a victim out of you. Uh, you're going to be the first responder. And you need to hold yourself accountable, you know, to a lot of these standards. If you watch what we are doing to American law enforcement on level of accountability and expectations of how much time we are expecting them to be doing absolutely perfect evaluations of threat and perfect applications of force. um, If you don't think you're going to be held to those same levels of accountability, you are sadly mistaken um, in a lot of places in this country that also tend to correlate with the places in this country where you're more likely than anywhere else to be a victim of one of these crimes. And, you know, the fact of the matter remains, you know, you're going to need to go get gas at some point. You're going to need to uh, venture into a large, large box store sharp at, uh, parking lot, uh, you know, uh, parking structures outside of stores, you know, places where criminals and, and, and those looking to get paid congregate. And, you know, the, the, the today's social world, the media, the Uh, it's hard for me even to use the word criminal justice anymore. The legal system you're going to be involved in uh, is is not set up to be your friend or to be, you know, uh, understanding of the circumstances you're facing. So it's absolutely critical that you are doing everything you can to shoot to high levels, to shoot high level of accountability, to be training to shoot to a high level of accountability. And, you know, if, uh, if your idea of that is uh, the most, the fastest, the bestest, the, the, you know, knock yourself out. Um, you know, 
what we, we do is we try to be the leastest and the most efficient. And you know, the terminology Wayne and I use, because if nothing else we took away from Larry's class, and I got that 30 something years ago, was, you know, words mean thing and terminology is super important. Um, you know, Wayne and I harp on people, you got to be legally, morally, and ethically correct on every application of lethal force you do, or any force for that matter. And uh, that's a very, very high standard today, and it, it's going to take work. Um, you know, just purchasing a gun or going to the coolest class on the internet um, or some of these YouTube celebrities, yeah, they knock yourself out, but, you know, you're going to probably find out that wasn't, um, you know, when you built your experience making YouTube videos versus actually uh, dealing with some of the most dangerous felons in the country, um, you know, the, the, I don't know how well you're preparing yourself for dealing with what the actual problem is. Yep, it's true. Wayne, it's yours. I don't know that there's much I can add. Uh, there are an awful lot of people out there conducting firearms training and at an awful lot of levels. And there are an awful lot of people that and there's a couple of three categories they fall into and i think you need to be careful and people need to watch for it one of them is you will see a category of people that have been tier one or similar uh, military operational personnel that uh, spent time with special missions units or special forces uh, in afghanistan iraq or other places uh, and they're they're now teaching uh, handgun and carbine classes uh, what they know and what their experience is from overseas is in no way applicable to dealing with uh, deadly threats on a Walmart parking lot in an urban area. And in fact, most of the methodologies I see in them, methodologies we see them teach are completely contraindicated for, uh, for use in a civilized area, shall we say. Uh, high volumes of fire, low volumes of, of uh, accountability, and uh, a lot of possibility of downrange hazard and maybe uh, shaky decision-making. That's one group. Uh, <clears throat> the other group I see, and they scare me even worse, and Daryl and I have talked about this a lot, is they've gone to one or two instructor classes or one or two operational classes and they have no operational experience whatsoever and 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 basically double digit or less hours of of formalized training in this and they decide they're an instructor and uh almost universally their safety practices are horrible their range practices are horrible and they wouldn't know uh they wouldn't know how to manage a a, a a hazardous situation if they were forced to, uh, they, they scare me to death. Uh, both of them do, but the second one really does. The first one at least has, has ostensibly dealt with an armed adversary in combat and perhaps successfully. But the second ones are literally like saying, Hey, uh, I've got a 15 year old stepdaughter here at home. It, it's literally like me being saying, Hey faith, I want you to go do a, uh, I want you to go do a senior level uh, class on economics. 
uh, and, and teach that class and, and handle it. Uh, it's, it's about the same analogy of, of lack of knowledge and competence and ability. So that's what I, that's what I would have to say on that. What's the third? You said there were three groups. The third one is you see, uh, you see some, some fairly experienced or fairly competent people out there and they will be typically training nothing but police. Uh, and, and some of them are very good. Some of them are mediocre. Some of them, uh, there's probably some excellent ones there too. They're, they're not actually out there. I would say in the marketplace to any great extent. Uh, the problem with, with the law enforcement training world is that it's extremely incestuous and extremely insular. Uh, if you go and I, I would tell you, if you went and surveyed a thousand so-called law enforcement firearms instructor tomorrow and ask them what kind of outside training uh, or knowledge they have sought in the last five years, and you would be in the single digit percentages of, of responses of people that have. So they're, they're basically just doing their game over and over again and hoping that it works. That's a, that's a harsh thing to say. And I'm talking about my own profession that I'm retired from and that Daryl's retired from and that you're currently in, but we all know the ugly secrets of, of current law enforcement firearms training. Yeah. The, the institutional firearms instructor programs are all about running a course of fire, you know, running a line of shooters, grading targets and, you know, basically getting people qualified and not necessarily teaching the individual use uh, of the firearm. And yeah. I don't, I don't know many, you know, law enforcement instructors who are, who could actually successfully teach that aren't doing stuff on their own outside of that. You know, we should do a one, one time we should sit down and knock out a podcast. And this is, this is a loaded question of what is qualified. Yeah, that's, that's we, we would leave blood and guts all over the floor. <laughs> you know, uh, kind of alongside what you're talking about, Lee is, uh, you know, going back to the class with Larry, you know, even, even, you know, somebody of his stature and, you know, literally in, in, in his era, you know, basically serving up the best hostage rescue team in the world at the time. And mm -hmm. you listen, you listen to the fights he had within his own institution. Oh, no kidding. The, you know, we, this is how we've always done it. What the heck do you know? You know, is, and we've all had that fight and uh, yeah. So there's, you know, I, I think a lot of this, I mean, to kind of sum it as a summary of what Wayne was talking about is what we have is a ton of people uh, teaching way out of their lane. And a lot of them are just driving on the wrong side of the highway. Um, it's not even that they're in the wrong lane. They are actually in the wrong, completely going the wrong direction. And, you know, there's a lot to learn from those military guys, but on the other hand, you know, when you're talking ROEs, you know, rules of engagement versus constitutional application of force, they're two big different things. And, you know, if you can't intelligently have that conversation, you're going to have a problem teaching. We have some exceptional technical shooters out there. Um, there's mm -hmm. a lot to learn from those guys. There's a, I mean, we've, we've been learning from them from the beginning of this is this, most of this all comes out of the technical shooting world, but until it's been vetted out in the practical shooting world or the use of force application, it's just that technical. 
And the problem is we got a lot of people who are stepping side outside of that lane as well. Um, you know, same with some of these people who you could probably do a, a good job of delivering if they actually focused on it, a basic home firearm safety course. Uh, but they want to teach, you know, flaming helicopters and, you know, SWAT rolls and all this other crap to, you know, fellow, uh, you know, uh, Walter Middies and, and uh, Sally Middies out there. You Don't know, forget who, the submachine gun burst off her pill. Yeah, you got to have that too. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, as, as a guy who's actually rappelled down an elevator shaft, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's so highly overrated. But the, uh, you know, the whole thing with this is, you know, uh, there's a lot of really good people out there trying to do a good job. And I think if a lot of these folks would just really stay in their lane, they do a great job. Sadly, is a lot of them don't. And, uh, you know, I'm more than happy to hand a lot of this off to a lot of people who are better at doing stuff than I am. But, um, you know, we are trying to spread the gospel on what we do know. So um, it is what it is. It's it's. I think some of us have hit an age in life. It's like, you know, go ahead, figure it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You guys got this. <laughs> there is a place for high level technical, technical shooting and technical shooting training and skill definitely is an important thing. And, you know, we spent just spent four days on a pure marksmanship and, you know, the better your skill with the firearm, the better you're going to be able to devote your mental energy to doing the assessments and the processing. So none of the three of us or anybody else that's been on this this show is going to argue against good technical skill. You know, I just question the real world application of trying to, if your whole training methodology is making sure draw speed is under a, you know, certain speed and, and there you go yeah and your split times and and all that kind of if, if there's not any intermixing of that uh with assessments and drawing and not shooting and you know because if you're programming yourself that every time that pistol comes out of the holster you're going to fire a shot then you're programming yourself to fire a shot when you don't need to and, oh you know i i i um Every, every time I'm, I'm running our accountability stuff, I'm becoming more and more devious as to how to give people inputs to correctly do this stuff. And every time I'm doing it, I'm finding more and more people are finding that, oh, my God, I've been training to do the wrong thing mm -hmm. because they end up doing exactly what they're training to do. And I go, um, you know, hey, that was that was fast and that was an amazingly super great job of, of that high speed failure drill you just did um can you look at that target and tell me what your shooting indicator was oh my god it didn't have the gun part in there <laughs> yep you just tosed an on shoot <laughs> but it was fast damn it was fast <laughs> yeah you smoked yourself into that murder charge like nobody's business and you know so it's it's again this uh you know, what we do take some uh, focus on, on exactly what it is. And again, you know, I don't mind, you know, I think, uh, you know, some of the funnest times I had in my life were shooting competitively. There's nothing wrong with mm -hmm. it. And I think it's wonderful. It's a great sport. Um, I think it's a great sport for people who do what we do to do. Um, but, you know, if you want to, you know, but 
on the other hand, you're, you're picking up some pretty, pretty atrocious habits for application of, uh, constitutional use of lethal force and, you know, pick your battles on that, I guess, or balance and, uh, you know, decide what you, what you're going to make permanent your, your, uh, neural pathways. So yeah, well, well, gentlemen, we've probably been going an hour and a half, or maybe a little more, and I could sit and talk to you guys for guys for hours because I've done it. And we've been <laughs> we, we we, better over we've barbecue. Done, we, we, we've done it. Yeah, we we've done yeah. it numerous times. Uh, yeah, but we're probably reaching or past the the limit of what an episode should be. Uh, so just with that, uh, Wayne, any closing thoughts? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, one well, one last thing: the technical the high-end technical shooting versus the assessment-driven uh, street-level shooting. The, the analogy I always use is it's like Formula One driving versus patrol driving and patrol pursuit driving of a police car. They're both involved vehicles, and they both involve stress, but the scenarios and the contexts are entirely different and have entirely different stakes in play. Daryl? Yeah, I just, uh, I'm enjoying kind of the last, uh, you know, these podcasts you're doing on at least visiting some of this history so we don't lose it. Um, I mean, kind of circling back to the uh, Larry thing, uh, guys like that aren't going to be around forever. And I think it's important for us to learn a lot from people like that who um, have done what most of us could never do or have even the opportunity anymore to do. Um, you know, that Larry spent a lot of time at the very tippity tip of that spear, uh, doing the Lord's work and then passing it down with a level of passion, uh, that is, is unusual and unique. And, uh, I, I just think, uh, many of us have been blessed to be able to be mentored by guys like that. And I truly appreciate you guys, uh, the rest of our group taking an interest in, in coming up with Wayne. Oh, we've lost Daryl. There went Daryl. Lost Daryl. All right. Uh, Well, I guess I'll go ahead and uh, and start signing off. Maybe that's the sign that that we're done. Um, Folks, if you're enjoying the show, please share the links. That's what's going to help it keep growing. Uh, I do appreciate all the positive feedback that we're getting. Uh, It's been kind of, it's been very personally gratifying to me. Some of the phone calls I've gotten within the last week uh, from some names that I that I know from the firearms industry people I've read and gun magazines and everything that over these last few episodes have like wow this is this, I'm getting to hear people you know people talked about that I knew and that I trained with and thank you for keeping this this going alive so I, I'm guys that that are appreciating that from that perspective I'm very much uh, gratified that you're you're getting something out of the podcast from that end uh, from the the people who you know, this is all new to you. This is the first time you're hearing this stuff. I'm getting some feedback from that too. And I'm very much appreciative of the fact that uh, the podcast and the shows are, are being beneficial to you. And uh, we're going to keep doing it as long as we can keep it fresh and, uh, and there's interest. Uh, Wayne, thanks for, for coming on tonight. And thanks for uh, um, <laughs> swapping text messages every now and then when we got a vent and some of the fun phone conversations and fire pit conversations that we have. 
You're very welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks. And uh, I'm sorry, Daryl's not here right at the end to wrap up. Looks like you had a couple of technical difficulties. Uh, but folks, again, uh, share share the links with your intelligent friends. Don't share it with the dumb ones. And uh, this is <laughs> this is that Weems guy signing off. And uh, thank you for your time. <laughs>